Last week we started our journey through a strange book. It might seem like a strange book and we found out that it's going to be a journey that could be dark at times as we read the preacher of Ecclesiastes' main message and that is that everything is vanity or everything is meaningless. Everything is a vapor. It's a breath. And now we turn to verses 3 through 18 of chapter 1. And the first argument towards that end is laid out for us. So let me invite you to read and follow along as I read from God's Word. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 3 through 18. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who, who, among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the way that all of your word points us to the thing that we need most, and that is Jesus. Sometimes it does it by revealing him clearly. Other times, like these passages we are in in Ecclesiastes, it does it by showing us where we would be without him. So, Father, as we come to your word, would you point our hearts and fill our hearts with the need and the desire to know and love Jesus more. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as hard as it is to believe, it may be hard to believe this on a hot, muggy Sunday in July. In just a few months, our stores will be filled with red and green and our televisions with commercials for upcoming Christmas specials. We're in July, so pumpkin season is just around the corner. Pumpkin spice season, and which will be followed very soon by Christmas sales. And one of those Christmas specials that many families watch year after year as part of their yearly Christmas traditions is the movie 
It's a wonderful life. I don't know if that's one of your family traditions. We've not quite reached that stage of life where that's a must-watch. We're kind of in the stage of Home Alone and Elf and the Santa Claus. I can blame that on my kids, but that's largely because of because of my interest, perhaps. Um, but even if you don't watch it every year, most likely you know the storyline of the movie. The tale of an unhappy man named George Bailey, who feels as though he is stuck in his hometown of Bedford Falls. Stuck in the neighborhood he grew up, stuck working the family business, stuck with a wife and a young family, stuck in what he sees as a not-so-wonderful life. Stuck in a life of monotony, and in his mind, a life of meaninglessness. But he longs for more. And for him, more is found in a different life. A life outside of Bedford Falls. Early in the movie, George tells his dad that the idea of working the family business terrifies him. He says, I couldn't face being cooped up for the rest of my life in a shabby little office. I want to do something big. I want to do something important. This is the quest of the preacher of Ecclesiastes. The quest to do something big, to do something important with his life. Or in the language that he uses in verse 3, the quest to find gain. The quest to find gain. This word gain is found only here in the book of Hebrews, in the, or book of Ecclesiastes in the Hebrew language. It's nowhere else in the Old Testament. It's a word that comes from the word of, the world of banking or finance. And it refers to a prophet. P-R-O-F-I-T. Prophet. Literally it means to remain or to be left over. After all the taxes have been taken out, after all the bills have been paid and the expenses have been accounted for, what left, what is left over is your gain. That's what this word is. Only the gain the preacher is looking for is not financial gain, nor is it even material gain. We can look ahead to chapter 2 and see that he has plenty of that. All of that gain, however, proves to be empty gain. The, the, the gain that he is looking for is the gain of purpose. It's the gain of significance. It's the gain of living a life that is well lived. Of living a life that matters. The question of verse 3 is a rhetorical question. No answer is given because the answer is implied in the question. What does a man gain from all his toil? Or another, as another translation puts it, you, you spend your life working, laboring, and what do you have to show for it? The implied answer from the preacher is nothing. There's no gain. You have nothing to show for it. And that's because he's looking for this gain in all the wrong places. He's looking for this gain in what he describes as life under the sun. This is a common refrain throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, and it simply refers to life in this world and in this world only. Where all that exists and all that is real is what happens under the sun. And the the preachers finds that there is no gain to be found in our lives if that is our perspective. Now what he's saying is not that life under the sun does not matter. But what he's saying is that you're not going to find what you're looking for and what you ultimately need in life under the sun. One commentator, Zach Eswine, said, it's like going to a shoe store in search for medicine. The shoe store has a lot of good things. But it's a sorry place to go when you're sick because it cannot help you. That's what it's like looking for meaningful gain in life under the sun. 
looking for something in a place where it cannot be found. Now, this language should sound familiar to us, even the words that this preacher uses, because another preacher used it as well. The greatest preacher. Jesus also said that no gain is to be found in an under-the-sun perspective. He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet loses his soul? You might gain the whole world, Jesus says, but you're not going to have anything left over. You're not going to have any profit. You're not going to have the gain you're really looking for. Why is that? Why does Jesus say this and why does the preacher of Ecclesiastes say this? Well, the preacher gives us four reasons that we will quickly notice and recognize as true as, as what it is to live life under the sun and look for meaning in life under the sun. The first thing he says is, in, is that everything under the sun is forgotten. Everything is forgotten. Why can't you find the gain you're looking for under the sun? Because under the sun, everything and everyone is quickly a fading memory. Look at verses 4 and then verse 11. He says in verse 4, A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. And then verse 11, There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The preacher says one generation goes and the generation that comes along after them forgets that they even existed. And that generation is only waiting to be replaced by a next generation that will forget that they exist. This is proven in the pages of Scripture leading up to Ecclesiastes. In Exodus chapter 1, on the very opening verses, we read that now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now we read that verse and we just kind of read it as a segue to the next stage of the saga of the history of Israel. But just stop and think about what that verse says. This new king did not know who Joseph was. Forget for a second about Joseph's importance to the people of Israel and the, the, the historical line leading up to Jesus. Think about Joseph's importance to the history of Egypt. He kept them from being wiped out by a famine. And and not only his importance to Egypt, think about his story. His story is a remarkable story. From a prisoner in the deepest dungeon to the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. His story is what movies are made of. His story is legendary. His story is epic. But yet his story is forgotten. Jump ahead a few pages in the Old Testament to the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, we read of the death of Joshua. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years old. Joshua, the successor to Moses. Joshua, the one who marched around the city of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. Joshua has just died in chapter and verse 8 and 9. He's, bar- he's died in verse 8. He's buried in verse 9. And look at what we read in verse 10. And all that generation, so that generation uh, along with Joshua, they died, they were gathered to their fathers. This is still verse 10, the next verse. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for Israel. A A generation goes and a generation comes and Joshua and the mighty works of God associated with him are forgotten. 
This is the first reason why we will not find the gain that we're looking for under the sun. Because under the sun, all of our accomplishments, all of our achievements, all of the things we think of as gain, even our very selves are quickly a fading memory. Moses writes in Psalm 90 that the years of our life are 70, maybe 80 if by reason of strength. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. We live 70, maybe 80 years. We might accomplish a lot in those years. But we will soon pass away. And with us, the memory. And with that, the memory of us will fade. Just started reading a biography of George Whitfield, one of the great preachers of the 18th century and one that God used to spark the first great awakening. And on the opening pages of the biography, there are two quotes telling us the significance of this this man. E.C. Dargan writes, the history of preaching since the apostles does not contain a greater or worthier name than that of George Whitfield. There was a lot of preachers between Whitfield and Jesus, but Dargan says Whitfield stands alone as the greatest of all the preachers since the apostles. John Foster, just a paragraph down on that same first page, says, if a list could be made from the experience of all the nations in all the ages, of the 20, man, the 20 men that have produced the greatest effects by means of their single personal influence, it is highly probable that the name of Whitfield must hold a place there. So we're not just talking about preachers. We're not just talking about the church. We're talking about the 20 men who have had the greatest impact on world history. It says Whitfield has got to be in that list. But yet you turn the page in his biography... And the biographer, biographer Arnold Dalamore writes this. During the years that followed Whitfield's death, mankind's attitude towards him became characterized by strange carelessness. Precise in- investigation was largely, la- largely lacking. The accusations made by his enemies were given wide circulation. The great accomplish- accomplishments of his life were gradually forgotten and his memory was allowed to sink into neglect. We come, and even if we have a great impact, so great that we are labeled as one of the 20 most influential men in the world, we go and are quickly forgotten. This is contrasted by the preacher, by in Ecclesiastes, by the permanence of the earth. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. If you've ever spent much time uh, watching a television show or reading a book about the size and the vastness of the universe, you've probably had the same sensation I have had as I hear the data, a, a shrinking sensation. As you realize the bigness of the universe, you realize just how small you really are. Some of you remember the Louis Giglio video we watched uh, many years ago and where he held up a golf ball and he says, if the earth was the size of a golf ball. And as he puts up bigger and bigger and bigger stars, that golf ball gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The size of the universe overwhelms us. But so too will the longevity of it. It will make our lives feel very fleeting. The preacher is talking about life under the sun. Have you ever thought about the fact that the sun that we live under is the same sun that Adam and Eve lived under in the Garden of Eden? 
Or the stars that you look up to on a clear winter night are the same stars that God invited Abraham to count. And the same stars that were broken up by a host of angels on the night of Jesus' birth. In the Bible, we read about the Jordan River from the opening pages of Genesis all the way through John. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Elisha, John the Baptist, the apostles, even Jesus, all waited in the water of the Jordan. And yet they are no longer here. But if we were to hop on a plane and go to Israel, you know what we would find there? We would find the Jordan River. And we could go wade in those same waters. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. We may die this afternoon, but in the morning, the sun will rise again. This is the first reason that we can't find the gain that we're looking for in life under the sun, because everything under the sun is fading and forgotten. Second reason he points to is that everything is tired. Janice told me this morning I look a little bit tired, so maybe I've been thinking about this point too much. Everything is tired. All, all things, the preacher says, are full of weariness. They're full of weariness. So much so, he adds, that a man cannot utter it. Which simply means that we cannot describe the level of weariness of the earth. Tremper Longman describes this statement as saying that the sense of the statement is that the wearisome of all things is so mind-boggling that it exceeds human ability to describe it. The preacher points to three aspects of creation to prove his point. The sun, the wind, and the waters. First, the sun. He says in verse 5 that the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. Pink Floyd, in a song on their album, The Dark Side of the Moon, said something similar when they said, So you run to catch up with the sun, but it's sinking. Racing around to come up behind you again. The the sun is the same in a relative way, but you're older. Shorter of breath and one day closer to death. But not only are you short of breath, according to the preacher, so is the sun. The word hastens is actually the word uh, word pants or, or gasp. What the preacher could be saying is that the sun, it sets and it quickly races back to start its journey again. But what he's probably saying and what he probably means by this is that the sun is exhausted. The sun is tired and panting for air from its never-ending journey. And we often look at creation and we have verses that tell us to do this. We look at creation and marvel at its beauty, at its, at its majesty. But the preacher looks at creation and notices its exhaustion. It's tired. But so too does another preacher, Paul, who says that the earth, the creation, is groaning like a woman in labor. Exhausted and just ready for it to be over. Preacher then moves from the sun, which rises from the east to the west, or which goes from the east to the west, to the wind, which blows north and south. Verse 6. In verse 6, two Hebrew words are used a total of five times in this verse. The word halak, which means going, is used twice. And the word sobeb, which means around, is used three times. One commentator said that the repetition of these words imply the, the, the feeling of being stuck in a rut, stuck in a rut, going and going around and around 
and around. Tremper Longman again says, The movement of the wind evokes the idea of much action with little consequence. And then finally he points to the streams, which are continually running into the, to the sea, but the sea is never full. Like a running water into a bathtub that the drain, while the drain is open. You put these three statements together about nature and you, you have a lot of action, but little to show for it. Or as Eaton says, though a hubbub of activity, nature is devoid of progress. A hubbub of activity, but little to no progress. Can anyone relate to that feeling? Think of the daily household tasks that need to be done. The dishes, the the laundry, mowing the grass, cleaning the bathrooms. You do it, you take a deep breath, and you turn around, and what do you find? A sink full of dishes and a laundry basket full of dirty clothes. You look at your calendar from the past week and all the places that you went, the meetings that you attended, the activities you participated, the chores you checked off the list. But what do you have to show for it other than just being exhausted? In the movie Groundhog Day, Bill Murray plays a weatherman by the name of Phil Connors who is stuck reliving February 2nd over and over and over again. Near the start of the movie, when Phil is trying to figure out what in the world is going on, he walks into a bowling alley and sits down at the bar next to two locals who are already pretty uh, pretty sauce by the time he gets there. And he asks them, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was the same and nothing you ever did really mattered? To which the one man sighed, looked into his empty mug and said, yep, that about sums it up for me. Life is more like Groundhog Day than we might like to admit. One commentator wrote of the preacher's description of the streams always emptying into the sea but never filling it by saying these things. It describes an action that does not move forward to completion. It only knows constant and sicilic motion. Constant and sicilic motion. One person said that Ecclesiastes is the only book of the Bible That was written on a Monday. Life in constant and sicilic motion with little to show for it. You work for the weekend. You turn around. What do you find? Monday staring you right in the face. All of this reminds us of the reality of the curse that God put creation and the created order under in Genesis chapter 3. A curse that if you really think about is a curse of frustration. Where Adam's descendants would constantly be working the earth but They would produce little to show for it. And it leaves us frustrated. It leaves us tired. And it proves that life under the sun in the things of life under the sun are not where you're going to find the gain that you're ultimately looking for. And all of this, the preacher says, is old news. That's where the preacher goes next. Everything is forgotten. Everything is tired. And everything is old. Verse 9 and 10, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. And there's a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been, it has, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Now, what the preacher is not saying is that there are never any new inventions or, or new creations or new innovations. If this is Solomon who is speaking, which many think they do, and I think it probably is Solomon speaking, 
then there are a lot of innovations that took place under his reign. There was a lot of progress made under the reign of Solomon. New things were being built and accomplished all the time. And if we were to somehow transport Solomon to our time, he would see that many things are that were not during his lifetime. There's many new things that have been built and created since the time of Solomon. But at the same time, he would realize that for all the inventions, for all the technologies, he would soon discover that we are still dealing with the same problems that he dealt with. Zach Eswine said that every human being has tried to navigate food, clothing, and shelter. Each one has wrestled with it, to, wrestled with what it means to work, to provide a way of life, to make their way to hope and wheat for their children. Crimes, wounds, and enemies are not new. Handling weather patterns, sickness, romance, aging, sadness, forgiveness, commitment, laughter, and dreams has not originated with us. Putting a space station in the skies has not kept our families intact, delivered us from dictators, or eradicated a selfish heart. Sure, much has changed, but at the same time, everything has stayed the same. Alistair Begg said in his sermon on Ecclesiastes 1, we put a man on the moon, one giant leap, or one giant step for mankind. But when we got there, all he had to do was stare at the earth. As, as many advancements as we will make in the future, we will still be fighting the same battles, dealing with the same problems. This is the third reason why we can't ultimately find the gain we're looking for under the sun. Because nothing ultimately changes because the ultimate things never change. And finally, the fourth reason and the final one is that everyone is limited. Everyone is limited. We mentioned that the preacher here is most likely Solomon. Possibly, some say, someone even greater than Solomon, a super Solomon. We can read in 1 Kings about the wealth and the wisdom and the power of Solomon. In chapter 10 of 1 Kings, the queen of, queen of Sheba hears the rumors of Solomon's greatness, so she comes to check it out. And, and what does she find? She, she says to the king, to Solomon, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I didn't believe them until I saw them, until I came and my own eyes have seen it. And behold, the half was not told. Your wisdom and your prosperity surpass the reports that I heard. A little further down in chapter 10, it says this, that King Solomon... Come on, go to the next slide. There we go. King Solomon, verses 23 and 25 of chapter 10. King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Again, we're focusing on the greatness of this man who's writing this. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold and garments and myrrh and spices and horses and mules so much year by year. So he, he's great and his greatness keeps getting added too. Solomon was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, and richest and wealthiest man who ever lived. But notice how he acknowledges his limits in Ecclesiastes. First, he acknowledges his, his limits of location. 
It says he was king over Israel, a growing Israel, an expanding kingdom. But even over Israel, he could only be in one place at one time. He was king over Israel, but he was in Jerusalem. He could not be everywhere at once. He also admits his lack of knowledge. Going back to 1 Kings, we, we read that his knowledge was given to him as a gift from God. We know the story of Solomon, but in verse 29 and 31 through 31 of 1 Kings 4, it says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the peoples of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other Men. This was given to him as a gift from God, but yet we read in Ecclesiastes that despite this base of wisdom that he was given, he goes searching for more. He was wiser than all men, but he was not wise enough. His power too was unmatched, but yet in verse 15 we see that his great power was insufficient. Because he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. My my power, as great as it is, cannot take what is crooked and make it straight. And we see too his, 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 his lack of wisdom. What is lacking cannot be counted. The most, one of the most powerful men and one of the wisest men that ever lived says it's not enough. It's not enough. So where does this leave us? Perhaps you're ready for this just to leave us with the end of Ecclesiastes and on to a better book. But where does this leave us? Well, finding gain under the sun, Solomon concludes, is an unhappy business. It's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Whereas another translation puts it, God has given, God has given people this miserable task To keep them occupied. But yet notice what he says in here. He says, it is a God-given business. Yesterday was the 4th of July. Our Declaration of Independence tells us that placed within each one of us is the constant pursuit of happiness. That's what Solomon is saying. He's saying, God has placed within us this desire, this business to search out and to seek out meaning and importance and significance. But what our declaration does not tell us is that this God-given desire is also a frustrating desire. Because as much as we search for it, we never find it. As much as we pursue it, like Solomon says, we find ourselves merely chasing the wind when we're looking for it in life under the sun. Running this way and that, reaching out but grabbing hold of nothing. We look for it in our jobs and we come up empty. We look for it in relationships, but they never fully satisfy. We look for it in, 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 in we look for it in entertainment, in popularity, in a large enough bank account. And while we might catch a taste of it, it never lasts. In fact, that little taste we get just makes us desire it even more. And we are soon sent running in a different direction. As the Rolling Stones told us, in this life, we can't get no satisfaction. But we try and we try and we try.
You know, you sing that and blast that on the radio. But think about what is being said. I cannot find any satisfaction, but I spend my life trying and trying and trying. And I never find it. This is that unhappy business that consumes those who live with an under-the-sun under perspective. So what is the solution? We said that Ecclesiastes is a sermon, and if we've listened to enough sermons that, to know that at some point, uh, the sermon has to take a turn to good news. But we're at the end of our text in Ecclesiastes, and there's no turn. The preacher has no good news because he has searched long and hard and he has found no gain in life under the sun. But there is good news. But it won't be found in the sermon from the preacher of Ecclesiastes. Instead, it will be found in the message of another preacher who comes and he too examines life under the sun. And as he squints and he, as he sweats under the beating sun, he will come to the same conclusion as the preacher, that life in this world that life in this world is full of trouble. This is the conclusion that this second preacher will come to. That life in this world is unfulfilling and full of trouble. But then he will say something that Solomon cannot say. Yes, this fool, this world is full of trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. C.S. Lewis once said that if we find in ourselves a desire, if we find in ourselves a desire that this world will not satisfy, then that can only mean one thing. We were made for a different world. And this is what we will find in Ecclesiastes as our search for meaning and our search for significance continues to turn up empty. As we search with the preacher under every rock under the sun, we will find that the only satisfaction we can find is not in the things of this world, but in the hope of another. Jesus, who said those words from John chapter 16, who said there's no profit to be found in the gains of this world that we read earlier, also told us where profit is to be found and where profit will remain. I don't know why this thing acts up. Matthew 16, 19, 6, 19 through 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Same thing that the preacher says. Everything in this world is corruptible. Everything in this world fades and forgotten. Therefore, do not lay up for yourselves in this world treasure on earth. Instead, lay up for yourselves treasure in a place where it remains. Where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break and steal. Break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here is the gain that the preacher was looking for. But that doesn't mean that life under the sun is now pointless or that we can't live under, under the sun with purpose. But it means that when we find this gain, when we find this true and lasting pleasure, treasure that is on the other side of the sun, 
then we don't have to live life expecting things on this side of the sun to give us what they cannot give us. We don't live our lives expecting our jobs to ultimately satisfy us. So so we can go to them not working for the approval of a boss, not working for a name, a way to make a name for ourselves or even simply to earn a paycheck. But we can go to them working for the Lord and working for the eternal reward that He has to give us. We don't go into our marriages and other relationships expecting our spouses and friends to fulfill us in a way that they cannot fulfill us. But instead, we live in those relationships as those who are fulfilled in our relationship with God and love and live, live, love and live for our spouses sacrificially. We don't have to be concerned about making a name for ourselves or seeking to get as many likes and retweets as possible to boost our popularity. But instead, we know that our name is written and known in the only place that really matters, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life. And we can use whatever time we have here under the sun to make that name known. We can stop worrying about being served. And instead, we can be free to serve. We discover that gain in this world isn't actually found in getting, but it's found in giving. In fact, the Apostle Paul said that my gain is actually what the preacher from Ecclesiastes feared the most. My gain is death. To die, Paul says, is gain. Whether that death is the daily dying to self or the death of leaving this world, this is where gain is found in life under the sun. But we will not discover this. We will never discover this. We will never find this if we're too busy looking for gain in places where it cannot be found. You will never discover it if you run from one relationship to the next, hoping that that relationship will finally satisfy. If you run from one job to the next, thinking that that job will finally satisfy. If you run from one experience to the next, thinking that experience will ever never satisfy. You will spend your life like a madman chasing after the wind, wind, grasping at nothing. So the question that these verses leave us with Let me first put them in the words of Isaiah chapter 55, where the prophet Isaiah asks us this, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? When we see what the preacher sees about the things and the promises, the empty promises of things under the sun, why spend your life pursuing those things? Why look for gain where it cannot be found why are you looking for medicine in a shoe store or in the words of jesus do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life the things of this world are forgotten tired old and limited but there is something that endures that is what this desire that we have, that is the only place that the desire we have will ultimately satisfy. And when we are satisfied with that, we can live a life well lived under the sun. So let us live for that in these days that we have, for that which is true gain. Let me pray, and as I do, let me invite the worship team to come up for a closing song. Father, we... 
Thank you that you have created us with this desire. This desire that often frustrates us. This desire that often causes us to to run around in exhaustion. But this desire that constantly reminds us that we were made for something this world cannot offer. That we were made for you. And that we were made to be in your presence forever. So Father, may as we see that and as we see the emptiness and the, the way that things of this world cannot fulfill us, may it cause us to, to, to run after that which can. May it cause us to live our life under the sun as those who are fully satisfied with what you have given us. A relationship with you and significance that is found in that. And allow that to cause us to live our lives here sacrificially, loving others for the sake and purpose of others, dying to self and dying to the things of this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.